Kia ora and welcome to this episode of the Stag Roar. This episode is brought to you by our mates at Modern Pirate, 100% carbon neutral. Modern Pirate makes an amazing range of men's grooming products. And if you're one of our Aussie listeners, then you've probably seen them in your quality barber shop. I've used the pomade in their matte clay paste to style what hair I have left. And their charcoal soap is the business. You can get 10% off every order by simply entering the code STAGROAR at checkout. That's lowercase S-T-A-G-R-O-A-R. Look good and support yet another quality Kiwi export that the Aussies are sure to claim as their own. Check them out at modernpirate.com.au. That code again is STAGROAR. Kia ora and welcome to this episode of the STAGROAR, episode 154. How about that? Um, I have the pleasure of being joined by Cam Speedy. In fact, I went and joined him. Um, went over to his house in Turangi and we got this cracker conversation. Hell of a time um, to be talking about ecology and conservation and the amazing work that he's been able to achieve with the Seeker Foundation and that very day with the Fjordland and Wapiti Foundation. Um, obviously, if you go back and listen to my episode with Dust, uh, Justin uh, Moore, Cam's going to be involved with the uh, uh, Tararua Foundation as well so yeah there's some exciting stuff from hunters and uh, people who are passionate about our game animals and yeah this conversation doesn't disappoint I'd highly recommend you go and listen to the other podcasts Cam's done um, people that have all been on this podcast Matt Gibson from The Educated Hunter uh, Paul Michaels from the Paul Michaels Experience and Dave Burns from Hunting and Reet um, Make sure you reach out and get in contact with Cam and myself. Let me know your thoughts and let's get into this awesome, awesome episode. Cheers. Right. Kia ora everyone. I'm sitting with Cam Speedy in his home. It's beautiful here in Turangi. Uh, for those that have been living under a bridge and haven't listened to The Educated Hunter, who's Cam Speedy today, mate? <laughs> Who is he today? Um... <laughs> Today I was writing some habitat impact reports for the Wapiti Foundation about some alpine brows in Fiordland um, because we want to make sure that Fiordland and Wapiti are a sustainable valued resource into the future. So we've got to keep an eye on what sort of impacts they're having and we've got to have objective science, robust science that helps inform management decisions. So we're working really closely with Doc down there. And we're, yeah, we've just finished a big report on 65 game cameras that were out for four months over November to March in the Alpine zone filming potentially browse on a on an Alpine herb that was getting um, some higher than perhaps desirable browse to try and find out who was browsing, whether that was big bulls or um, family groups or chamois or possums or whatever yeah so yeah that's that was today's mission um and it varies every day i've been working pretty much full-time for the seeker foundation for the last couple of months out of lockdown and um just the time of year but that's that's what i do i love wildlife and i'm fortunate enough to be able to live the dream yeah mm. so well Who's paying for the for Fjord and Wapiti Foundation research? Because right now there's $150,000 sitting for the Tar Foundation. How much research could that buy? 
yeah, that could buy a bit of research. Um, <laughs> a lot of volunteer work goes into the Wapiti Foundation. There's an amazing group of passionate guys downtown that are just unreal. Um, so a lot of, lot of free mahi, um, and but then there's obviously science is not cheap. Landcare research in Christchurch are hugely supportive. People like um, Graham Nugent and David Latham and their staff. Um, so that has to be paid for. Um, I donate a lot of my time. Um, so, yeah, it's a mix, really. It's it's a mix of passion and uh, revenue from stuff like the ballot, uh, the bugle ballot, and uh, any profits that are made from... Uh, the culling operations when venison is good mm -hmm. obviously this year it's not yeah. and we've been able to bring that mince to the North Island and, and around New Zealand to spread to needy families which has been awesome so I've, I've helped here in the last couple of weeks bring almost a thousand kilograms to Tūrangi and Taupo food banks in Taupo Woman's Refuge so yeah it's it's about making the most of the resource that's out there valuing the resource what, what's a sort of um, MPI type idea around that and you know like home killing stuff you're not allowed to sell and obviously you guys are giving that away donating that what's the sort of food safety regulations that you're working with and to it, do that it's all processed through fair game meats in Invercargill uh, it's a registered mm -hmm. pack house so it's meeting export quality food processing standards mm -hmm. um and it's been paid for uh, and given away. Yeah, uh, I think it's about eleven or twelve dollars a kilo to shoot it, recover it off the hill, get it to Invercargill from Tiano, process it into high quality mints, one kilo packs, um, and then various organisations are paying the shipping costs from Invercargill to the needy people who are getting it. For us, it's about a dollar fifty a kilo to get to Topol yes. from Invercargill, and the Sikh Foundations paid that yeah. for the total residents two dollar residents so yeah that's part of our social um side of things it's it's not just ecological it's yeah. not just economic it's hugely social and from a recreational hunting perspective too it's a really important healthy outdoor recreation that connects people to the whenua so yeah for me that's where the rubber hits the road for game animals they are a valuable social um, economic uh, resource but they have an ecological consequence so we've got to manage them carefully because their impacts can be damaging and that's that's the sweet spot that we're trying to hit in the middle somewhere yeah and so someone who, who struggles to understand a sort of waro fixed in with management scheme how how would you approach that idea of this is a concentrated culling system to manage the herd, manage the ecology, manage the forest, so that it's a better hunting experience. Because that's a, that's a, long, a long conversation for a lot of people to oh, get absolutely. around. <laughs> so if we are to truly maximise the benefits of our game animal resource and minimise the consequences, then what we have to understand is it's the f family groups associated with females that do the lion's share of the environmental impact. Mm -hmm. So they quite sedentary in their life cycles, in their lifestyles. 
Um, they operate over quite small landscapes and their environmental effect is concentrated in those landscapes. So as um, Wapiti family groups grow or Sika family groups grow or Ta Nani groups grow, the impact in those head basins in Fiordland or those um, rock bluff systems in the Southern Alps or those Manuka faces, beach faces in the Commonwealth, that, that becomes more intense. Mm. Um, so on the other side of the coin, hunters value males mm. because they have antlers and uh, rut hunting is awesome. Um, so males are quite nomadic. They commute large distances seasonally from food supplies to breeding country. The way I describe it is that males often operate in the fattening country for most of the year and they return to the breeding country for the rut. So that helps people who understand farming to um, to sort of put that that segregation of a landscape into some sort of context, you know. Mm. A lot of the farms around the central North Island, they're breeding farms and they send their stock away to Hawke's Bay or the Waikato for fattening before they go to the works, you know. So farmers understand that concept of breeding country and fattening country. Largely, male game animals occupy the, the fattening country through most of the year and come back to the breeding country for their ruts. And that, for me, that sets up a win-win for conservation and hunting. If we can keep the females in check and allow the herd structure to, to develop where you've got at least a balanced herd, because uh, so many of our herds are terribly female-biased. You know, our, our waro industry shoots more males than females. Our recreational hunters largely shoot more males than females. And, and that's a reflection of two things. A, they value them more, uh, and B, young males are pretty dumb. Mm. Yeah? So their behavior predisposes them to cop a bullet often. Mm. Um, even if you're looking for any deer, it's the spiker that stands up and looks at you long enough to, to put on the deck, you know? So, um, People seem to think, oh, you got to be careful, you don't shoot too many hinds, you know, you, you might end up with no deer. Nah, nah, you just keep keep your females under huge pressure. You'll restrict the effect they have on the environment and on a conservation estate that will reduce the environmental consequence of the herd. And um, you leave your males to mature because for most males, if you want to talk about trophies that people want to put on the wall, it's a five or six year investment for a seeker. It's probably a seven or eight year investment for a, a tar. It's an eight year investment for a wapiti bull. And it's probably a six or seven year investment for a red stag. So that's a long term investment. You know? mm. And the only way we'll, we'll get those sort of trophies of old back again in any numbers is to look after the young ones when they're dumb and silly and stand there and look. You know, those spikers, those dumb as wood young velvets that are out in the open uh, f for the feed and don't realise how vulnerable they are out there. Hmm. So there's the win-win for conservation and, and hunting is understanding that you can't hit your, hit your females hard enough. Just mm -hmm. keep the pressure on. It's a renewable resource. All of those fawns or calves or, or um, kids that hit the deck every December, we reset and we start again. And what comes out of that year class will, will be dictated by how we manage that year class in the next zero to eight, ten years. Mm. Clip back the girls, let the boys get a bit older, balance the herds out. So many of our herds are so imbalanced. And as I talked to Matt about um, on, on the Educated Hunter podcast, 
some of the Whanganui fellow herds are probably our worst example. You know, they're just does everywhere. Yeah, we're, heading, we're heading there next weekend uh, for, <laughs> for a meat hunt. So all, all I can implore you to do is talk to the landowner and say, can we please shoot a truckload of does? Yeah. And please don't shoot a whole lot of spikers because dead bucks don't grow. You'll never have good bucks if you shoot all your spikers. Yeah, they're priced yeah. that way. So that's good. Cool. Yeah. It's really important all over New Zealand that hunters understand the need to shoot way, way more females. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't need more deer. We need to look after the deer that we've got. Mm-hmm. And we're not looking after the deer that we've got. This whole idea of not shooting females is taking us to a dark place. Mm-hmm. Ecologically and politically. Mm-hmm. So the, the example for um, management and engaging with waro and being or lanky or whatever being there to help manage means that they do select you know totally the wapiti foundation takes a thousand animals a year out of the wapiti area yeah and those are all very carefully selected take that one take that one nah leave that one leave that one take that one take that one take that one not leave that one leave that one it's incredibly selective yeah red deer bang red deer bang Ooh, potentially good young bull. Let him go. We'll find him next year or the year after. Yeah. Or the year after. Just let him show his spots. Uh-huh. Cow, boom, cow, boom, cow, boom. Ooh, nice cow. Good calf. Nah, leave him, leave him, leave him. Yeah, it's incredibly selective. Yeah. And when I first went down there, we were seeing family groups of 15, 16, 19 was the biggest one we saw. Oh, it's not a good look, eh? Head mm-hmm. basins with... Family groups of 19 of them look pretty munted. Now, um, on our game cameras, um, the game cameras that I've just analysed through this um, survey, the biggest family group was seven. That's, that's better. Five, six, seven's getting up there. We don't need family groups of 19. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's about trying to balance the herd ratio, the, the herd structure, uh, allow a higher proportion of mature males in a lower density overall population with less females. What that means is that you don't have to harvest your herds so hard to stand still because it's a renewable resource mm. and every December a whole lot of fawns hit the deck and you, if you, the more fawns that hit the deck the harder you've got to work to keep the lid on the numbers. And the first thing that happens when you start suppressing numbers is they push back harder. Yeah. Every single female has a form, bang, every year, bang, bang. And as Matt and I talked about in the ring and ticky, um, a lot of the seeker deer might have one or two forms in their whole life. In well, well in, the, in the publication you guys done, that fascinating thing is no rising two-year-olds pregnant. Zero. Zero. <laughs> in the work I did at Puranui through the early sort of 2010, sort of about 2009 to 2013, we smashed a heap of hinds off Puranui because the numbers were just through the roof. And by the time we'd finished, 100% of the two-year-olds were in form hmm. in October every year. 100% of the two-year-olds. That's what happens. The harder you push down, the harder they push back. So this, oh, don't shoot too many females. We'll lose our hunting resource. No, nah, no. Nah. 
they adjust. They behave differently. They're more cunning. Hmm. They are more productive because they've got more food. Hmm. The less impact they have on the environment, the more productive they are, the harder they push back, the more effort you've got to do to control them. So if you get your herd ratio, your herd structure right, you'll actually make your work easier in the future because you don't have to shoot so many just to stand still. Hmm. It's a renewable resource. Hmm. A whole lot of fawns hit the deck every December. Reset, start again. And so that gives you, if you cock it up, you know, you can rebuild it again in a few years. Yeah. But if you cock the habitat up, it'll take decades, yeah. which is why I published that Elder Leopold essay um, after the Stony Creek um, um, talk in lockdown mm-hmm. that Roy and, and um, Brent and I did. Um, it's an essay called Thinking Like a Mountain, <laughs> you know, and you can replace a deer in a couple of seasons but if you pull the range down if you pull the habitat down if you smash the foundation upon which that herd depends it could take decades to repair yeah. you know and we don't want to go there yeah. we saw evidence of that all through the 40s and 50s all over new zealand we don't want to go back there yeah so yeah there's a balance to be struck and um it's it's really important that we as hunters uh, do our bit and understand that and we need to do it in a very empathetic and objective way, which is exactly how the Field and Wapiti Foundation operate. Yeah. And it's how we're trying to make the Seek Foundation operate. So it's... Um, Using a farming analogy, and it would be fresh in mind of many rural people at the moment, um, you see with the drought, the animals are up on their feet all day, every day, trying to find tucker and food. I'd imagine that's the same in the bush. If there's high numbers, low food, not o- not only are they just trying to get a, a, a belly full, but they're moving around trying to find more. One of the features of places like much of the Mohaka Manuka and much of the Rangitiki Mountain Beach Forest is that there's shit everywhere yeah. and there's deer marks everywhere. Right. Because those deer that live there have to cover every single inch of their home range every day to pick up enough cardboard to extract five-eighths of NAFL nutrition to yes. survive by a toenail. And so the throughput is massive. There's shit everywhere, and it's just all cardboard. And they have to cover their whole home range every day yeah. to f- fill up those pukus with nothing yeah. and to extract just enough to survive. So... Yeah, I, I totally relate to exactly what you've said because I see it in our, some of our seeker blocks. I, I saw it, I went uh, to the Macintosh um, shortly after lockdown and the face going down into the river, I noticed it. I was like, oh, they've been, they've been running around in here trying to find food. That whole face, I was like, wow. And, and it had rained as well, so a lot of it got And if you away. look at how rutted the game trails under those big old man broadleaf trees are, <laughs> the, the roots are sitting up on... Um, on sort of, I don't know, pinnacles yeah, yeah. of mud because the hooves are under that broadleaf tree a couple of three times a day, every day, yeah. hoping a leaf had fallen off. Yeah. You know, broadleaf litifor is the single most important deer diet, seeker deer diet in the common or Kawika forests, beech forests. It's in every single gut and it's up to oh, half the gut if they can find it. You know, in, in the gut analysis work I was involved with through the 80s and early 90s, 20% of every single seeker gut had, was broadleaf litifor. Hmm. 
So that's why you go under those broadleaf trees and they're so rutted and the deer trails are so trenched because they're there every day. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I can't imagine what the drought has done to farming in, in the Hawke's Bay through the first six months of this year. But what you describe is, um, yeah, those poor animals are got nothing to eat and they're on their feet all day trying to find something. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's what's happening in some of our seeker blocks. Yeah. And that, that ain't during drought either. That's yeah. just daily life for them, which is why those 14, 15-year-old hinds might have only had two fawns in their whole life. Yeah. And that's why their carcass weights are 16, 17 kilos. Okay. Compared to Clements Road, 35 kilos. Poles apart, eh? Yeah. Mm. And so what's the history of Clements Road that's doing so well? Uh... They did a whole lot of beach splitting through there through the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s. So there's pulling tracks pushed all through it and big clearings. And then the beach is regenerated, but the primary reason is there's really good access. There's a 19 kilometre road through there yeah. that gives people access to hunt and lots of people go there. And only a few kilometres to the north of Clements Road, which largely runs east-west, is Lake Taupo Pine Forest, right. which is full of grass. And so the stags commute out to that fattening country and get fat and those who don't get shot by um, the hunters that have access to that forest come back to roar in the beech forest at Clements Road so largely for much of the year when people are hunting Clements Road the only deer they have access to are the family groups of females and their offspring so the harvest is much higher on on the females so the herd is capped at a real sweet spot of about five or six deer per square kilometre Cool. And interestingly enough, five or six deer per square kilometre was the density identified as what you'll get mountain beach regeneration in the Kawakas. If you can get the numbers from, and they were in the 20, 25 deer per square kilometre at places like VT and um, Mangaturudu and Tipuki. And they, they shot them with a helicopter and they got the numbers down to six deer per square kilometre and the, the mountain beach started regenerating. Cool. This is the win win, eh? This is the. Um, the win-win for conservation and hunting is when hunters start to realise that more is not better and actually fat venison that are at a low to moderate density, um, especially if you've got your herd structure right and you've got more mature males, then you have awesome runs because the single calling is um, every hinds um, cycles, every raw, and every estrus doe has probably a number of stags hanging around trying to mate her. So, that just sets up amazing rut hunting. Yeah. So, you know, there's lots and lots of benefits of taking a different approach, a more balanced uh, approach. And, yeah, I, th I think that's where hunters have got to get their head around. Waro is important in New Zealand because we have so much country that's hard to get at. Yeah. But the problem with Waro is it harvests our herds in a competitive way. They're taking the same animals that recreational hunters would want, largely those velvet stags in spring, yeah. instead of letting them mature and become hard antler. In my view, waro should shoot um, young ones and females. Hmm. They should that should be their focus, and the recreational hunter should focus on males. How do we make that economically efficient then? Oh, I don't know. Waro is marginal, and that's, yeah, that's, right. that's the problem. The business model is, is marginal. Maybe, maybe the social outcomes of feeding needy people with game meat from our high country 
if those who pay for search and destroy in our mountains could get their uh, minds around other benefits for New Zealand Inc. So Doc might be paying $400 to shoot every seek hind out of the car because all the Kaimana was on the search and destroy operations. Um, maybe if they talk to the, um, the welfare uh, organisations, the health organisations, and we actually started feeding people on some of this lovely product, um, maybe it's worth pulling them out and processing them and yeah. giving them to needy people. And New Zealand benefits socially, health-wise. Maybe if people are not so focused on just feeding themselves, we might have better criminal justice outcomes. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> so if we just get out of our government silos yeah. and we start thinking about New Zealand Inc. and what is this amazing resource that we've got in our mountains that gets people out from behind their devices and off the couch and into the hills feeding their families with quality organic protein uh, and getting fit but hey and keeping the numbers in check so that we look after the habitat maybe there's an opportunity to feed needy people who can't get in the bush hmm. with a really high quality protein so I love this idea that we can we can share the the mince that's coming out of Fjordland the, hmm. the prime export quality venison with people who can't afford to feed themselves at the moment hmm. to me that's just a fabulous social outcome and it's way way better than shooting them and leaving them on the hill to rot that's a tragedy hmm. right? yeah no and like um, I took some fellow around that I didn't shoot I got given some fellow and then I paid it forward and took around to my mates the other day and you know, he was sort of oh, oh I've never really liked this and I said to him it's probably how it's cooked and how it's prepared this will be good it's fallow for one and I'll cook it properly for you but with mince it's hard to stuff it up it's versatile <laughs> oh venison mince is a pretty awesome product and especially fjord and wapiti are at low density yeah and so every animal yeah, is just in beautiful condition you know yeah. um it's a quality product it's an export product oh I love the deer industry because yeah. of that very thing but yeah. to, to try and uh, get it off the hill but at the moment, our waro industry, and sometimes our search and destroy to try and control numbers, competes with yes. the hunting sector. And I think there's a win-win, uh, and it's based around good science. What are those environmental limits? What are those acceptable environmental limits? Yeah. And we still don't know that for so many parts of the country. And that's why I'm really, really grateful to have had an opportunity to work with the Wapiti Foundation and DOC and Landcare Research on this um, camera survey in, yeah. in the Wapiti Alpine Zone because what we're trying to do is see where that sweet spot is. What is the acceptable environmental limit um, where we can have a, a Wapiti herd, a really high quality Wapiti herd in Fieldland and that special national park, that World Heritage yeah. Status National Park gets looked after at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that's the win-win, eh? And we've got to be looking for win-wins. And if we're not then we're going to just get into our polarised political political fights. And I hate it. It's horrible. Yeah. We don't need to, eh? Yeah. It's ugly. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so then if we want to drive at management, which we're being told is illegal, um, you know, or, or not, not, not within the Parks Act sort of thing, and like I say, that's, that's political fighting, 
if we want to be proactive, what do we what do we need to start talking towards? Do we need to start being proactive in ourselves and understanding what the ecology is? We have, we absolutely have to look at ourselves as hunters and going, do we really need that many game animals? And and if the bush or the high country is looking a bit sad, who's really to blame? Yeah, you know, can, did we shoot enough females? I don't know. Can we work with other sectors? get a win-win outcome. The Fieldland Wapiti Foundation have done it in Fieldland. Yeah. Um, and language is important. You know, we, we do have to put the welfare of Fieldland first and foremost because that's the foundation upon which not only the Wapiti resource is built but all of those kia, those field, yes. those kiwi. Man, that was a cool thing about looking at all those images off all those game cameras. Weka, kiwi, um, kia, awesome. That, for me, it was a bigger, as big a buzz as anything, seeing all those threatened species b- bouncing around on those game camera images. Hopefully Takahe one day. And maybe Takahe. You know, yeah. Maybe we can shift them from the Moochies into the Field and Wapiti area. Wouldn't that be a cool outcome? Right now, the, the Field and Wapiti Foundation are investigating more and more extensive trap lines, not only through the glacial valleys, but through the alpine zones to protect rock green and kia and, and some of those more alpine species. So... There is a win-win here, and it's about hunters being part of the solution. You know, this is what Matt and I talked about. We we've got to become part of the conversation, part of the solution, yeah. or we could get horribly sidelined at yeah. a political level, and it'll just we'll just get to suck it up. You know, uh, and there there is another way. So for me, I think it's. Um Getting rid of your emotions or your ego about the thing, and, and you know the amount of people that are out there saying I hate Doc or I hate Forest and Bird, and maybe listening to listening to the reasonable few that aren't saying to you I hate hunters, and and then um, sort of like we were talking about before with the iwi, going to the middle ground and going, we're working towards like you say with. A World Heritage National Park. We're working towards the health of a World Heritage National Park. I guess that's where iwi are, have a really important perspective. As mana whenua, they have a spiritual connection to these landscapes that goes back a long time, a lot of generations, hundreds of years. And they have an intergenerational responsibility to look after these places. Hmm. And that's first and foremost their driver. And and for for Māori, pork and venison is a really important surrogate for the protein they used to harvest from these forests before we introduced predators that smashed all the Mm. kiwi and the kakapō and the kaka and the kiriru and they became threatened species and protected under the Wildlife Act. So their traditional kai can no longer be taken legally from our forest because it's threatened and protected. Hmm. Pork and venison has become the replacement. And so for Māori, as hunter-gatherers, with a connection to the landscape, the pork and the venison is an important part of their culture, their contemporary culture. But first and foremost, they have an intergenerational obligation to care for the forest. And that's no different to how I see it as a hunter, as a as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and objectivity is one of the most important aspects of science. If you've got a biased perspective, you can't yeah. be a scientist because yeah. you can't have science for sale. Science is, you look at the data and it either tells you that your ideas are right or it tells you that your ideas are wrong. You cannot have preconceptions. You've got to be objective. Yeah? Yes. And that's why science is so important. Emotion doesn't play a role. It's a straight down the middle. You know, so um, for Māori, um, that, that whole kaitiakitanga, that intergenerational responsibility to look after the place, for me, needs to be embedded more and more in our hunting culture. Yes. And, I, and we've written about this in the Seeker Foundation annual report that for, for decades and for generations, we've had this, as hunters, this sense of entitlement. It's our right to go in there and hunt these deer. But we also have obligations and responsibilities. And, and that's what Māori have as kaitiaki, as mana whenua for landscapes. They have those responsibilities and those obligations as well. Yeah. And so we've got to just de-emphasise the rights and entitlements and we've got to re-emphasise the responsibilities and the obligations. And that's where you come in the middle. Yeah. You know? Um, and that philosophy is something that Māori, my work with Māori in, in the environmental space has taught me. And um, if you ever have a chance to read a document called um, Te Kawa or Te Uruwera by Ngai Tuhoi, it's just a revelation as a philosophy for looking after the land. And, and as hunters, if we don't look after the land, our game resources will not be sustainable either ecologically nor socially nor politically and we're on hiding to nothing yeah so yeah that's that's my take on it so like i was asking you with the clearance mill that's sort of going on any north island hunting forum people asking where to go hunting they get told go to clearance mill road but nobody even knows why do you think that as a hunting community we need to look at the history of our hunting areas and communicate the history of the hunt, hunting areas sort of like going back to Iwi like the whakapapa of an area like what each is the significance of each, each area maybe yeah I, I think Eastern Kawekas is probably a lot like Clements Road it's really accessible um, because it's accessible hunters are clipping back the deer a lot of the stags go out to the farmland for to the crops and the grass for the fattening country for to grow their velvet uh, and so for for part of the year, hunters tend to contact um, family groups, breeding hinds and family groups more often than they encounter stags. Yeah. Um, so maybe that helps keep the herd um, in check a little bit more. And that's what's good about Clements Road. It's not that there's lots of deer in these places. It's that the deer are really healthy. They're really productive. And that's a reflection of the habitat. Uh, and the access means people can keep chipping away at them means they get pretty cunning. Yeah. <laughs> so the average age of the deer harvested off a lot of these places is quite young. It's the young dumb ones that, that end up in the freezer. But hey, that's what we want. We want people to shoot deer, but we want people to shoot lots of female deer. And hunters should never be scared of shooting lots and lots of females. It's, it's a misnomer that if you shoot females, your hunting resource will decline. When helicopters were flying around getting paid $2,000 a hind um, live capture, yeah. they cranked the numbers down so low that it got to be a problem. But 
a helicopter, you could buy a helicopter back in the day for about three or four hundred thousand dollars. And you, can, you can pay it off in the first month yeah. then. <laughs> and then after that, it's just pure profit and adrenaline and a funzy sort of lifestyle. Dangerous as hell, but, yeah. you know, um, they were just making money hand over fist and they could fly around. Because at that time, a huge 500 was probably only costing about eight or $900 an hour to run. You could fly around for two hours, catch one red hind and you've paid the bill, you know? And these guys were selling trailer fulls of 100 live hinds Queen Street farmers come down and write a cheque for enough money to buy a new helicopter. You know, that that uh, was the motivation, the economic, commercial motivation to squeeze the numbers so low. Yeah. We're just never going to get there anymore. Us hunters on our, on our own are going to struggle to stay on top of the hind numbers. Um, we do need helicopters. We do need waro. And in many places, we do need search and destroy. But the win-win comes from those helicopters operations focusing on females the ones who are doing most of the environmental damage because they live in very discreet sedentary home ranges and them and all their offspring impact locally yeah and then leave the males for the recreational hunter you know the men and and their daughters and sons so that you know all new zealanders grow up with that that love of hunting again like we had back in the Back in the day, hmm. you know, my daughter's loves hunting. You know, she's thirteen years old. She's shot um, three seeker deer now. Um, loves it. Me. Loves <laughs> it. You know, um, and she'll grow up hopefully, and her family will be connected to the fenua and be connected to hunting because the experiences that she's had, uh, and that's why we've now got a female hunter rep on the Seeker Foundation because we want to grow female hunting like woman hunters it's just an enormous growth industry the last 10 years mm. it's fantastic because they become mothers and they instill um those values in their kids and they're and they're able to participate in hunting and and the, connecting to the landscape with their families feeding their families healthy kai it's a spiral up man you know so absolutely yeah and i've had Maz and rosie here on here from Seeker legends, you know, it's two girls talking about seeker hunting. It's yeah. bloody awesome. <laughs> um, and, and like like you said, we were talking about Mac Gibson, you know, it's important to tell the story. And sometimes uh, females have got a few more words than us males. <laughs> Good communicators. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, the, the one thing that my daughter has re-emphasized for me is the need to be respectful and humane in everything we do. Mm-hmm. You know, you take the shot when you know it's going to be a kill shot. You don't go around weaning deer and, you know, it's, um, that sort of stuff just puts people off, you know, and that's going to kill our social license to hunt more than anything. So mm-hmm. more and more uh, the world is becoming urbanised and disconnected from, from not only the land but from their food supply. Mm. Uh, and when their only connection to firearms is watching gun violence on the television um you know we're going to see political change that makes it harder and harder for us to justify what we do as hunters so we've got to be squeaky clean you know Mm. and teaching our kids to harvest humanely not being blase and disrespectful you know uh, animal welfare is a critical part of hunting going forward in a political social context also Mm. Yeah. yeah um so where does a lot of your construct for management come from? Is there much of the um, American model 
sort of Western hunting ideals or? No, nah, because uh, while a deer is a deer anywhere in the world, wherever it lives, New Zealand is unique. Great. And what I've learnt, uh, I've taken aspects from Scottish gamekeepers I know, I've taken aspects from American wildlife biologists that I know, I've been to Australia and I've taken a lot of understanding from what I see with Samba uh, and Rusa and Fallow in Australia and some mm-hmm. of the problems they've got. But New Zealand is unique, our situation is unique, and um, we've got to have management regimes that reflect a New Zealand construct, a New Zealand context. And so I think my perspective has been influenced by international game management philosophies and, and concepts, but it's been refined by my time in the hills in places like the Mohaka Manuka, mm-hmm. in places like Ecology Creek in the Rangitike, um, in places like Te Urawera. Uh, and I've seen what too many deer looks like. I've seen what ugly hammered forest looks like. But I started hunting in 1978 mm-hmm. and there was hardly a mark to see. And you'd bust your ass getting down the back of Waka Forest and offer a in the dark to get down to the fire break at the far end just on light to see a huge 500c model come past and catch a couple of hinds and bugger off again <laughs> very frustrating and you'd barely see a mark you know so uh, i know what it's like when numbers are really low and i know what it's like when numbers are really high and i've had the privilege of working with the Wapiti foundation and seeing that resource being refined into something pretty special that is increasingly able to fit in that sacred world heritage national park landscape Hmm. so yeah it's horses for courses new zealand management has got to be bespoke it's got to be site specific seeker in the rangatiki is going to be different from seeker at clements road yeah uh red deer in the rokumata in the Uruweta is going to be different from Red Deer in Central Otago and Fjordland Wapiti in the Wapiti area is going to be different to Red Deer down in Doubtful Sound and the southern fjords yeah. you know so it's got to be bespoke and you've got to design a system that works for sp- for place and the issues are different from place to place access species type of habitat rainfall geology stability of the country fertility a lot of this country in the central north island is just acid lifeless soil you know so carrying capacities are very very low up there so all of these things overlay at a site specific sort of level when you start considering what you need to do at place yeah so in a perfect world how how much resource do we need to manage and direct hunters for the when we first put the seeker foundation together in march 2015 we did a business plan which uh, estimated that we would need about one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year uh, of operating money so that's not paying the committee or the volunteers to do the mahi it's Mm. just operating funds to sort out uh the parts of the Kaimanoas and Kawik is where deer numbers needed to be more intensively managed. It's not a lot of money. 
Yeah. When you consider that Sikadera uh, bring in $18 million of economic activity to the Central North Island, that's a bit yeah. of a drop in the ocean, eh? Yeah. A couple of zeros off. Um, 18 million, uh, 1.8 million, 180,000. It's about 1% yeah. of the economic activity generated by the species. If we can't invest 1% of the value of the economic value of a species back into management, then there's something very wrong. Because look at all those businesses that make profit out of Seeker. We're lucky, and the Seeker Foundation gets some wonderful support from sponsors. But it ain't $180,000 a year, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so as the people using the resource, the hunter, what, where do we need to start finding value? Don't know, but currently hunters get what they put in. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> yeah, well, you get like, what you pay for, right? Eh? Yeah, like, you know, you, you spoke about science. So from my perspective, I'm trying to science hunting. And I know it's an art, but I'd love I'd love the the science to be there. Do you know how much my seeker radio tracking study cost? Fifteen stags. No. Over three years, I followed fifteen stags for three. I've read it. <laughs> Eighty thousand dollars. Yeah. Is what that study cost. I got about forty thousand dollars in sponsorship. Yeah. The rest was carried by my business because it was what I wanted to do. It's not a complaint. It's just a straight up fact. So that was an $80,000 study over three years to catch and radio collar and follow 15 Seeker stags. And I learned so much about Seeker doing that, yeah. man. Uh, it just blew my mind. So that's how I r realized that the stags commute so far. I always had an inkling, and that's why I wanted to do this. Yeah. When we were down at Tomatoe, for 10 years, Strat let us play around down at Tomatoe Creek just... Um, near Big Ben in, in the upper Mohaka opposite Mangatonguru and and these big flash hairy stags would turn up every April and they were coming from somewhere else so they looked so different to the local scrub stags Yeah. and we knew they were coming from somewhere whether it was Lochinvar or Puranui or Pakatudu or, yeah. but but it was 15 kilometres from uh, where we were to any of those grass sources Yeah. so we knew I knew they were coming from somewhere like that and that's why I wanted to put radio collars on stags and see how far they went. And one of the stags I collared is a little spiky uh, on Porunui, um, ended up down in Tamarai Creek <laughs> in a place we call Sherwood Forest. Yeah. It was so cool, man. It's just poetic. So we, we were able, using science, to confirm theories that we'd been developing. And Dan Harry's, uh, one of his stags, went 17 kilometres from his um, fattening country back to his breeding country. So they're commuting that far. And, and so as nomads, their environmental impact is a nibble here and a nibble there and a little bit there and a little bit there. So they're spreading that impact over a vast landscape. Unlike the females, Dan's study showed the average home range of a seeker deer was only just over 100 hectares. So one grid square on a map, her whole life, and all her fawns and all her yearlings, and as her family groups grow, if we don't shoot enough hinds, just eating, 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 eating on that one grid square. And that's where the environmental impact of the females and their family groups comes from. And that's where the win-win for conservationists. Yeah. Conservationists need to control females, and recreational hunters largely value males over females complementary management not competitive mm. management mm. 
it's a no-brainer, man. It's not rocket science. Mm. So on the like the plant side, how 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 much time does a plant need? Or you said the the six deer per hectare. Well, a beech forest needs two hundred years to grow from a seed to a canopy tree that dies of old age and falls over, and then the cycle repeats again. And the way beech regenerates is that um, the canopy dies from um, drought stress, which we're seeing in the Waipakahi Valley yeah. right now this year. Uh, vast acreages of beech frost has died because of the drought. It's a natural phenomenon. It's got to its um, old age, yeah. yeah, and it's got stressed and it's died, and then weevil and fungus attack will get into that forest now and break it down and as the canopy starts to collapse the light going to the forest floor will mean that there's a pulse of new seedlings coming away and it'll take those seedlings 40 years to grow up to close the canopy over again but it will take them probably about five or six years to get up out of the browse tear of the seeker deer mm-hmm. and my fear is at the moment if um, we don't keep the deer density around that sort of six deer per square kilometre in the Waipaki Valley. A lot of that forest that's died naturally from drought will turn into Caprosma scrub deer lawn, which is a vast change that won't provide habitat for kakariki or kaka or tuis or bellbirds, or it'll it'll still provide habitat for tomtits and, and um, silver eyes and, and warblers and stuff, the, the scrub habitat, the small fruit eaters, because Caprosma scrub has, has quite good fruit crops seasonally. But those big beech forests won't provide habitat for those other parts of that ecosystem. Yeah. So we've got a problem looming in the next few decades in the Waipaki Valley. So, you know, um, things like broadleaf, um, every single seedling that falls in the deer's browse range gets eaten mm. uh, but a lot of those seedlings fall uh, down and as epiphytes or on stumps up out of the browse range and broadleaf can regenerate uh, there's certainly seed sources on all the steep um, stream banks and bluffs and waterfalls and as epiphytes um, but every single seed that drops to the forest floor and the deer browse gets nibbled off and so yeah, it's a very complex thing you know, it's it's not easy to understand. Living in Jap Creek for most of my life for six years in the late 80s, early 90s helped me see it and understand it a lot better. Um, again, that was science paid for by Forest Service and then Doc, um, but focused on how do we learn more about deer so we can kill more of them. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas for me it was about how do I learn more about seeker deer so I can understand them better. Yeah. So we can manage them more intelligently. Hmm. So that's been my focus. So, Kim, you know, how, obviously the beach is down the list of their choice of browse, but if there's nothing else, they'll, they'll chew it. Yep, right? yep. Mountain beach is um, moderately palatable. Silver beach is more palatable. Red beach is probably the least palatable. So you tend to get a bit of red beach, but red beach is a lower altitude. Yeah. And then... The red beech drops out, and the seeker, uh, the silver, sort of blends in, and then right up high altitude, and in the middle where it's a lot drier, we get a lot of rain shadow. The mountain beech dominates. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not all the beeches are equivalent in terms of palatability. Um, 
but but if we want those other more palatable species or see those more palatable species present things like doing a good job oh no because uh there's such ice cream that every (laughs) single one of them that you you only need a very very small number of deer to find every seedling in the browse tier yeah but my point is is that they're not eradicated or or, uh, eliminated or exterminated from the forest they still grow as epiphytes they still grow on steep stream banks they still grow on all the bluff systems and all the waterfalls so those plants are still present um just not in quite the same density per hectare that they might otherwise be there they're not gone uh, but if you put an exclosure plot around a piece of forest to stop the deer browsing, you'll see broadleaf and pseudopanixes and um, the caposmas and the fuchsias all starting to come back. All the little ferns, the palatable ferns, like the pickle pickle and the shield ferns, they'll they'll grow in your exclosure plots. But you can put an exclosure plot around the savannah in Africa as well, and you'll see a massive change. Yeah. Is that natural? What's in the yeah. in the fence on the savannah in Africa? I don't know. It tells you what your forest could look like with zero deer. And I'll tell you what, some of those exclosure plots, you're like walking through a hedge lengthways, man, it's impossible to get through. Yeah, I've been to Mangatotra <laughs> a number of times and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, man. That understory is insane. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I project managed the um, pest eradication on Mangatotra. Yeah. And when I first started working there, and there were goats in there and pigs and possums for Africa and rats for Africa. You could ride a bike through all that. And now, then it turned into supplejack. And now it's ferns and, and palatables, and it's it's amazing. Yeah. It's like an offshore island. But, you know, how much does that cost? Yeah. And, and we could consume the gross domestic product of New Zealand trying to eradicate deer out of our forest so we could have exclosure plot type um, floristic diversity in our forest understories. But, yeah, is that a priority? What's Where's the balance? Hmm. You know, like I said, Deer have a very strong cultural, social, recreational, um, economic value, and they have an ecological consequence. And somewhere we've got to find where the acceptable middle ground is so that we can get these win-wins. Do we know if acclimatisation societies had pushback? Is that documented? They had pushback once the damage started becoming obvious. Yeah, yeah, for sure didn't take that long <laughs> by people were warning of the signs um you know they put all the tourist department released so many different species through the first 10 years of the 20th century the 1900 to 1910 that's when most of our game animals arrived yeah by the mid 1920s the alarm bells were already going off mm-hmm. yeah and then when the men all went away for war in the 40s boom in the 50s and 60s was you know we all know that story yeah handbag deer bonsai deer yeah, as like matt that. calls them <laughs> can you imagine picking up a eight-year-old seeker stag one hand on its ass one hand behind its neck and picking up out of a creek and throwing it up on a bank no. on a terrace above the thing <laughs> bonsai deer not a good look that reflects the habitat they're living in yeah hey and that's not right and that's not sustainable and as hunters we don't want that we don't want to go there man yeah so is, is there more 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 capability to get more people in there 
or is it, it becomes a safety issue? Um, you can send people in there, and a lot of people go in there, and they'll be squealed at, and they'll see all the poo, and they'll see all the marks, and they'll see all the damage, and they'll come in and say, "There's not that many deer in there." What are you on about? Yeah, but well, I used to go in there every year, at least once a year, um, usually twice a year, and I knew I was going to lose a lot of skin and a lot of gravy. And I went in there with that expectation, and I wrecked myself. Yeah. And um, it's not easy. Good, good uh, news for Seeker Foundation, though. There's a lot of appeal starting to go with expedition hunting. Hell yeah. It's yeah, fun. those management hunts, eh? They've been just fabulous. They're, they're an education for the people who go. Yeah. They're a source of information and data for us. Um, and it's engaging people in these conversations yeah. because everyone who goes gets this diatribe from me. I'm, yeah. I'm just in their face about management and, and carrying capacity and ecological consequence and how many how many fawns are in there, you know, how, how many hinds. If they've got fetuses and milk, cup I yeah. If they've got no babies, you've got to ask yourself why. And I love the seeker rule, and so I know the connection between healthy hinds and single calling, which I've described to Matt yeah. a few weeks ago. You know, yeah. hunters need to understand that if you want to have that most outstanding hunting experience in the world of hunting seeker stags at a single calling, you need to listen to what we're talking about yeah. and start getting your head around it. That's why the hindsight competition yeah, I was about to say, is is, about is so critical. You know. Um, and that came out of our visit to you guys that questioning who whoever it was down the back kept asking those questions yeah. it was a light bulb for me to realise how important it was to start getting that stuff out there because yeah. he got it in the end Yeah. but he couldn't see it for a while and that was hugely valuable for me to understand what, what I need to do as a biologist to communicate better yeah yeah, yeah. and I think my question came out of Studying reproduction at uni, to then hearing you talk about scars on on fetuses and stuff, I was like, "Shit, yeah, I'll do that." Mm. <laughs> you know, like I've overectimized a rat, and I was like, "Yeah, I could look at her." The last her rat we, <laughs> the last rat we caught out of Mangatoti Southern Enclosure was yeah. a female, yeah, uh, eighteen month old female. Uh, she was tracking oh heaps of hectares because she was in there all by herself, <laughs> and. I watched John Innes from Landcare Research in um, Hamilton open her up and look at her uterus and say, no, nah, she's never bred. She's a virgin. <laughs> and I thought, far out. I'm going to learn from this. Yeah. And so I started looking at all of my hinds that I shot. And it's, oh, there's scars. No, there's no scars. Like, it's, it's just insightful, man. Yeah. It's getting into that inquiring mind that... Um, that biologists turning turning hunters into biologists and as they become biologists they become managers so shifting them from being end use consumers to being managers that's that's gold man nice that's working mate so where do people go and find you you're on facebook is that right dangerous place oh, i hate facebook <laughs> i've got to say um so it's probably not the best way to communicate with me but um yeah i have a facebook page cam speedy wildlife biologist yeah. my business facebook page um on linkedin phone numbers and 
email contacts uh, on LinkedIn. Um, but I'll talk to anyone anytime anywhere about game management and ecology and sustainability and our responsibilities and obligations as hunters to look after our whenua. Okay. And of course the Seeker Foundation is easy to find. Easy man, easy. Yeah. And I'll have a link to that. Fabulous too. website, thanks to thanks to all the good work that Martine does. It's a brilliant website. She's doing a great job and man the Facebook's just been going gangbusters this last few weeks, so eh? it's awesome. Yeah. yeah, and um they can find the PDF of the annual report. That's what I was doing yesterday. Like I'd seen it. Um, at our last year's talkers meeting, Dustin brought it over and you know, had a good read through yesterday. It was fantastic. Like like I said, there's, there's science in there and a lot to learn and it'll shape your hunting, I'd imagine. We hope so. Yeah. So um, what I get people to leave us with is a thing that always shows up in your life when things are going well or, or like a quote or something that you live your life by. Oh, what do I live my life by? Doing what's right. Yeah. Yep. Doing what's right, whether it be helping needy families get kai, or helping the karate club, um, <laughs> or whatever. Looking after the kaimanos, looking after fieldland, looking after eels or blue ducks or whatever it may be. For me, it's about I'm driven to do what's right. Nice, mate. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Thank I, you. I said to you when you came over the hill that I'd talk to you one day and I've managed to do it. It's wicked. Cool. This, I've learned heaps. <laughs> Again. <laughs> wicked. Pretty simple, really. Doing what's right. How does that show up in your life? Where are the places where you can go and do what's right? Of course, the answer is everywhere, but. Where can you really make an impact, really push the needle for an advancement of your tribe, your community, and uh, those that it influences? Yeah, I, I like that. And it's a bit like uh, my why of improving people's lives, doing what's right can be narrowed down to the micro level or opened as broadly as you like. Um, so yeah, I love that. What a pleasure to have Cam on. And like I said, we discussed a few things there. Um, and the more and more you listen to Cam, the more and more you learn. And I'd encourage you to go onto those other podcast platforms, Hunting Arena, The Educated Hunter, Paul Michael's Experience, and tune into a few more episodes of Cam Speedy because you'll pick up a number of things uh, we didn't even touch on. The uh, sharing gang in the bar, which is <laughs> which is pretty awesome to uh, have an hour conversation without without going there. So, yeah, when you listen to those other ones, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. Of course, I bring you the podcast with the help of Waikito W A I K E T zero dot P R U V I T N O W dot com. It's in the show notes, and that's your link to exogenous ketones, a ready to drink sachet that you just mix with water. Gets you into ketosis in under half an hour. There's also the Keto Reboot, which is a 60-hour assisted fast. And all of those products are available individually as well as within the 60-hour fast on the website. Check it out. 
Let me know what you think. Thanks so much for listening. Another episode in the bag. Plenty more legends to come. Um, yeah, this has been one I've been wanting to do for a long time and so good to get it done, especially at a time where there's a lot of conjecture. As Cam sort of said, science doesn't lie and that's what many of us out there in the hunting community would love to see um, and would love to know. What are we, what are we trying to achieve? Just let, let's do that and let's let's direct our resources, our hunting, our ability, our drive to get into the backcountry, our want to get, get out there and test ourselves and put ourselves to the limits, expose ourselves to the elements, the terrain, the mountains, the, the all of it. Let us know where to go. We'll do it because we, we love it, you know. Um, yeah. Reach out. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode. Cheers.